Bob Switzer, and this is the Epic Narrative. So, as we get up the next morning, Jonathan knows he's going to go out to see David. I don't think Jonathan slept well that night. I get the sense that after after having his father uh, attempt to kill him, uh, seeing the anger in his father, the desperation to not be you know questioned, uh, to not change his mind in front of the audience that was there. Like there was just a lot, a lot of negative stuff that I think was building up, and had been probably for a while. And and I, you know Jonathan kind of spent his uh, his his relational ca- uh, cash. Uh, not cash, uh, uh, like his his supply, his uh, his savings account. When he when he questioned his father out front, and and then it just just the anger to, uh, and Jonathan within him to see what had become of his father, to see his his dad not be willing to reconnect with the heart and love of God, because because of pride, really. And we've been over this before. I just, you know, he just struggled. He struggled with that idea that he was in charge, that people were going to, you know, that he didn't want to disappoint people, that whenever he changed his mind, he looked like a fool. And, and man, there is one thing that people deal with self-rejection. They hate being made the fool of. They just hate it because at some level they feel exposed. They feel um, more rejected uh, because because rather than move from a place of identity and purpose where where when they're questioned or they realize you know because of questions that people have they realize the decision was probably not the best and they're able to just shift it that that uh, the that questioning makes them feel stupid and foolish and and like a dis, you know like they've disappointed people they 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 just it's just ugly. So pride protects them from that, but it's still the same pain that they feel. It's still the same. Uh, it's just it, negative emotions, just lots of negative emotions. So Jonathan is, I think, rehearsing that all throughout the night. Like, oh, you know, like my dad. I know he's better than this. I know he doesn't actually want to kill David, an innocent man. He doesn't want to do this. Uh, he's he's got to, he's got to change his mind. How can I change his mind? And then and then more thoughts of like, but. You know, clearly he's intent on this, or he had, you know, he wouldn't have attempted to kill me. I cannot believe my father tried to kill me. I cannot believe he threw that spear at me. And he wasn't trying to threaten me. He was like, and I kind of doubt David was alone. I don't know if his his brothers were there. I don't know if his sons were there. I don't I don't know if if his wife was there. But I have a I just just given the cultural. Um, nuances of the Middle East, I can't imagine that he was alone. I'm guessing there was family around. I'm guessing there was family at the table when this occurred in, you know, in the banquet hall and they knew what happened. And I get the sense, uh, not the sense. uh, I can't, I can't get the sense of it in that there's nothing in scripture to say it, it was true. I just think culturally, I sincerely doubt he was alone. And as the night wore on, 
he just knew I've got to tell David. I've got to. I've got to send. Like, not only have I lost my father, now I'm gonna to have to send my best friend away. Not only have I. Is there like clearly a family riff that that who knows if we can ever overcome? I have to send my best friend away. I have to tell somebody who is a warrior, a king. Uh, well, not technically yet. Uh, you know, a songwriter, a, a friend, an artist, like all of this, I have to send him away. I have to tell him he's no longer, you know, that he can't come here. Not until my dad figures stuff out. Not until. I don't think Jonathan was thinking. I'm never gonna see. I'm never gonna see David again. He's thinking I've got to send him away. He doesn't know where David's gonna go. He just knows David can't stay here. He doesn't know when he's gonna change his father's mind. He just hopes someday he can change his father's mind. He. Like there's a lot of things he doesn't know, and I'm sure again during the night he's probably trying to think through all the problems and difficulties that could possibly occur for David, and 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 if if there are connections that he, that Jonathan has that he can reach out to on behalf of David to get David some protection. I I there's no way Jonathan's thinking I'm going to send my friend out into the wilderness. Good luck with that, David. I I you know I I hope I hope someday to see you again. He he has no idea. And I'm sure he's thinking of options, resources, acquaintances, relationships, possibilities for David. So the next morning he gets up, he goes out into the field uh, for his meeting with David. He had a, a small boy with him, a young man, uh, probably, you know, anywhere between the age of 10 to 13 years old. And he shoots the arrows out into the field, and he tells the boy, uh, you know, run, go get him. And the and he shot the arrow beyond David. And when the boy came to the place where the arrow had fallen, Jonathan's like, no, no, keep going, keep going, and hurry, don't stop. These are all like kind of code words that he was throwing out to David. Like, you, you can't come back to the palace. You're going to have to run. You're going to have to run far. And don't stop. Don't, you know, don't think um, this is a one-night deal. And the boy picked up the arrow and he returned to his master. And Jonathan says, "You know what? I think I'm done. Th I think I'm done uh, shooting arrows. You know, it's just I'm fine. Here, take these back to the city. Because, again, I don't know if you remember, but." This field that David was hiding in was purposely picked to be outside the city walls so that if there was some sort of a, uh, attempt to uh, find him, if Saul suspected that he was in the city, they, he wouldn't have had to come out through a window again so uh, to, to be let down on a rope or to try and run out of the, out of the gate before it was shut. So he, they're outside the city wall already, and I'm I'm thinking this is probably pretty early in the morning. There's not a ton of activity. Uh, I'm sure that there's a lot, you know, there's market people and tradesmen that are starting to to make their way in and out of the city. But the field it's it's probably not getting a lot of attention at this point. So the boy left, and when the boy left, uh, David got up. And he, I, I think he probably looked across the field, and there's Jonathan. And David fell on his knees and bowed before him. Now this is a, 
this is an act of honor, uh, an act of respect, an act of love. Three times he bowed down to toward Jonathan just just to communicate the depth and and intensity of the emotions that he was having. I mean, David had to have a ton of emotions. You got to remember now. This is we're talking three days that he's been in the field. Three days that he's had to, in essence, be alone, isolated. And as a as a as a deep thinker, and as somebody who you know had spent a lot of time alone, well, at least hanging out with sheep. Maybe not necessarily alone, alone. I mean, he had some animals to talk to, and sometimes animals, you know, can be really good company. I I like our dog. We have a sweet little doxy. We've we've had a number of doxies in our life together. My wife grew up with doxies, so that's what she wanted, and uh, I I've learned to like them too. Uh, anyways, so I, I get you know that that they if sheep sheep I'm sure could be a company. There might have been a a dog or two that were part of the part of the crew out there in the field. So I don't know, you know what David did by himself out there. I don't know if there was a any sort of animal that maybe maybe he had stopped stopped by and David kind of made friends with. But I'm sure he processed whatever that means. Like I. I process out loud, but I don't necessarily process with people. I call myself an introvert. Uh, I'm an extrovert in life, but I process internally. But I actually process mostly out loud. I just talk to myself. So maybe David did a lot of that. And David probably, I mean, you got to remember his first questions to Jonathan, again, Way back at the beginning of this chapter was what, what did I do? What was my crime? What did I, how did I wrong your father? And I would imagine that some of at least the first day he spent really processing everything he'd ever done. Was there something worthy of death? Was there something that Saul could be that upset about? I'm guessing there's there's and I know, I know I do a lot of guessing. I do. I have to use what I call my sanctified imagination. When you're telling these stories, and and I get details of culture, and and I, I study archaeology and and read about it uh, in this region, and I read history books, and I watch documentaries, and I like there's just a I'm naturally drawn to that. So when I see history, I don't I don't see dates and numbers like some do, which is all, you know brilliant, and I don't think that way. I see people, I see relationships, I see connections. So when I read uh, this, you know, the scripture, I layer all that information in. And so I would imagine that, you know, that David, uh, sitting out there, he's talking to himself, he's processing, and maybe, maybe he's a verbal processor. So maybe he's talking to himself and maybe he's an internal processor. Maybe he's just sitting quiet. Maybe he's meditating where he's just, where he's just passionately, Staying in the presence of God because there's just no way he can get through this without him. Now, some of this, I think, comes under scrutiny because of the choice he makes uh, after this time. But I, I can't imagine that he spent three days not connecting to heaven. I really don't. I, I believe he had to have spent some time with God during his time out, out by the rock. And I think it's a, it's a good lesson for all of us. There, there's a lot of times that you will be innocent. But because of the choices of other people, 
your life is going to be rocked. And that happened to David. That happened to David a few times, actually. And that's okay. Like there, you can't you can't beat yourself up, and you 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 never you never go at this and say, "Well, God, God's doing this for a reason." God doesn't do this to somebody. The choices and results of those choices cause these sort of ripple ripple effects. Negative ripples if it's negative choices, positive ripples if it's choices of love. But all of uh, we 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 you if, <laughs> sorry. Sometimes I have so many thoughts rolling through my head I can't think of the, uh, the all the words want to come out at once. Uh you can't you can't look at a negative circumstance and and assume that God sent it. I don't think God sends negative circumstances. I think His goodness overrides all circumstances. So David's looking for the goodness of God, and I think he finds it here and there while while he spends three days out there. I'm guessing he's also getting hungry. But he sees Jonathan, and he just bows down to Jonathan. He lets him. He communicates from across the field. I love you, and I don't know what's going to happen next. And Jonathan uh, ran to him. And it says they kissed each other and wept. But David wept the most. <laughs> I think it's awesome that, that that whoever wrote this wanted to you know, make sure that we knew that. I, I do know that some are, are like, well, this, is, this came from the Holy Spirit because this is inspired. Yes. I, I know the Lord inspired the word. I, I believe he inspired people to write these stories down. I don't think he gave them, I, I don't think it was uh, that intense that he was like, oh, and also put in that David cried more than Jonathan. I, I just think that comes from the heart of the person who's writing it. They know the story, and whatever was going on in that field, and let's not get hung up on the fact they kiss each other. This was again culturally, men kiss each other often, and, and when they said hello, when they said goodbye, when, when they, especially when they were family, and they didn't know when they might see each other again, they were going on a long journey, they kiss each other. This was not, this was not a, a, a homosexual activity going on in the field. It, they were saying goodbye, and it was intense, and David cried a lot. David probably cried more than Jonathan, maybe because David had been alone for three days. And David, for the first time in three days, was seeing somebody who he loved, but then he also had to say goodbye to that person. Remember, David hasn't seen his wife since since he ran away probably weeks ago when she let him down through the window and let him over the wall on a rope. He hasn't... He hasn't been in the city. He hasn't seen his friends. He hasn't seen the men that he has done battle with. He's alone. This is this is hard on David. So he says goodbye to Jonathan, and Jonathan says to David, "Go in peace, for we have we have a sworn friendship with each other. In the name of the Lord, the Lord is witness between you and me, and between you your descendants and my descendants forever." He, he just he just reminds David, I, I know you're going to be alone, but just remember, our lives are connected together through covenant. 
that is that is that is based in a love that comes from heaven and it will last forever that's what all those words mean your descendants and my descendants forever our families our our friendship is based in a love that lasts forever there's no way that anything could be said or done that would ever destroy the, the relationship that you and I have. This is amazing. So I know you're going to go out alone. But you're never alone. Because I will always be your friend. And your descendants... and my, Now remember, at this point, David doesn't have any children. But Jonathan is confident that, that you know, David's going to continue to live. And David's going to have, uh, you know, have children. And their children will have children. And Jonathan already has kids. And, and, and he's like... We're we're all gonna we're all gonna get along. Our families will always be connected because of because of what you and I have committed to in covenant with one another. So all that's going on, and David left, and Jonathan went back to town. I I can imagine that you know when David's leaving, he's pretty um, he's pretty upset, right? He's been weeping like a lot. So. He's probably got that <laughs> going on as he as he starts to walk away. And Jonathan probably took a deep breath and is thinking, "All right, I gotta go deal with this mess. I gotta figure out something with my dad. Oh, this could take a while because he's fairly confident that his dad is pretty entrenched in this decision. So he walks back to town. And it says that David went to Nob. David went to Nob, which is about three miles. Now he's heading to Nob to see one of the high priests. His name was Ahimelech. Ahimelech. I, I love the way that it's spelled because I, I, I think I almost sound Hebrew when I say it. <laughs> But I have a gut feeling that if somebody who knows Hebrew said it, I probably would be like, "Wait, what? What is it? What did you just say? I don't even know. I don't even know what you're talking about." But I like to say it, Ahimelech. So he goes there. It's it's toward the end of the day. Now three miles is not, you know, is not an impossible amount of of distance to travel. So. We go back to verse 35 of chapter 20, and we see that it, we see that it was in the morning that Jonathan went out to the field to meet David. But by the time he gets to uh, Ahimelech and Nob, which is only three miles away, it's the end of the day. We know this because of of what the priest gives him. So, what are we gonna do? What? Where did all this time go? Did David just did he crawl for three miles? No, I just think that's that's where we get all that information, conjecture, imagination of a, of the conversations between Jonathan and David. I think they hung out together for a long time in the field, and I think David did not run full steam. I think he he walked. And he probably did some hiding along the way as well. I don't think he walked on the road. I think he didn't want to be seen. I think he knew that if he was seen, it could be trouble. So it wasn't a direct route. He probably stuck to the hills, 
the valleys, the gullies, the streams. He went the back way, the paths, the shepherd's paths that he might have known about just because he would have been aware of all those things. And he gets to Nob and, and he uh, knocks on the door and the priest comes out and he's like, it says that he trembled when he met him. What, what, what in the world? Why would you be afraid to see David? Why? <laughs> Hello? Remember what happened to, when David went to see Samuel? When he was up at uh, at uh, at that town? What, what, what was the name of that town? <laughs> I can't even remember. He goes to, he goes to see Samuel and and um, Saul sends you know four rounds of troops. To Na 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 Naham, Rama, that's where it was. He goes to Rama, right? So, so this priest sees David. They're only three miles from the capital city. This guy sees David and he thinks, "Oh my gosh, what are you doing here?" Like I, like no, no, no. Oh, like I, I thought you were with Samuel. I thought you were staying somewhere else. I know the troops have been sent out to kill you. I know a lot of stuff that's going on here, David, and uh, frankly, I'm not interested in that kind of activity around my <laughs> around my little my little temple here, my little uh, priestly duties. I don't need any troops coming. I'm only three miles away. They could be here, and like I don't know, what would it take a horse to run, you know, or, or to run a, a three mile journey? Not not long, not long. He does not want David to stay around. He's trembling. He's like, why Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Now, now he asks those questions because, again, he's thinking, there's only one reason why David's here alone. Only one. And that's because David's running away again. That's because people are after him. And, and, and uh, I may love David, and he might have done a lot of things, but I do not want to die. So what am I going to do? Why are you here? Why, why is no one with you? And David, David comes up with a lie, right? He comes up with a lie. He says, uh, he says, well, uh, you know, I'm I'm being sent on a secret mission. The the king sent me. He he said, uh, no one is to know a thing about this. And as for my men, I've told them to meet me uh, down the road. Uh, so I kind of need some food. And the priest is thinking, okay, n none of this sounds right. Absolutely none of this. I don't know if you're a parent, but but as a dad, there's been a few times in my life where a child has spoken words to me, and every part of it makes me think there's not, none of none of this is true. <laughs> also, as a camp director, I ran camp for eight years. Uh, well, I was there full time, but you know, I ran the camp part of it for for eight summers. When it wasn't summer, I was just, you know, maintenance. <laughs> but but there were many times a camper would say things to me, and I'd think, mm hmm, I don't think any of that's true. But this is what I am always committed to. No matter what I think, it gets override with this with this principle that I'm committed to, that I believe. Whatever whatever someone's telling me is true. I believe it. I cannot. I cannot expect myself to know when someone's lying. 
even if I think they are. And if I do know that someone's lying, I don't assume that they're lying. I assume there's something I don't understand. That there's, a, there's information I don't have, or there's a perception I, I haven't, I haven't uh, you know, I, I'm unaware of, or I haven't thought of. And so when I think someone's lying, I don't, I don't accuse them of lying. I don't, I don't uh, reject them as a liar. I ask for understanding. And so in this case, Nob, uh, the 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 uh, Elimelech, Ahimelech, he he assumes David's going is telling him the truth, even if everything that David said doesn't sound quite right. The priest said to David, "I don't have any bread. I I I I have some consecrated bread here, uh, provided the men have kept themselves from women." So he's like, "Listen, I." You know, you you're coming here for supplies like this. I'm. Why would I? I don't. I don't have a storehouse. I have the loaves that are that are set before the Lord. They're set there every 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 morning, fresh bread. And at the end of the day, I collect them. I have those. I have five loaves from today. But it's consecrated bread. And as far as the the letter of the law goes, you can't have. The bread, if you're, if you, you know, are unclean, and there were a number of things, and sex was one of those things. If you've had sex with your wife, you're unclean, or anybody actually, you're unclean. So, like, I would give you the bread, but I need to know that your men, the people who are eating it, are are consecrated, that they're clean. Now, this is this is one of those little instances where. You have a religious leader who understands the letter of the law, but not the heart of the law. God did not, if you were going to give the sacrament bread, the, the holy bread, if you were going to give that to a starving person, it doesn't matter if they're, if they're unclean. God wants the person to eat. God wants to provide for that person whatever sustenance is possible. But Elimelech is going with the letter of the law. He's like, I can't give you the bread if the people aren't aren't." aren't sanctified aren't clean and David's like oh for sure uh, my men are clean oh without a doubt uh, indeed yes we have stayed away from women as is used I mean we always do that whenever I set out my men's body are are they're holy even on missions that are not holy how much more so today because this is a very holy mission that the king has sent us on we are we are solid with God we are righteous we are clean we haven't had sex in weeks we are we are so ready to be to be you know to eat the sanctified bread like this is almost overkill a little bit because david's desperate david's starving if you did you know if you do the math right it's probably three days since he's eaten unless there was food out you know in the field he, he might have had some he might have had some but I don't know that, and and it's not indicated that he did. So it could be possibly that he has spent three days without food, and so he's really hungry. So the priest gives him the bread, since there was no uh, bread there except the bread that had been in the presence of the Lord, and it had been removed from the Lord and was replaced by hot bread on the on the day it was taken away. So there was there was this there's an indication of the time of day that this is. You wouldn't remove the bread until sundown, so that's probably. Why uh, not probably? This is why I'm thinking David's there in the evening, 
after he had spent a long time with with Jonathan in the fields and then started his little um, non-direct route to this place about three miles away. Now all this is going on and one of Saul's servants was there. He was worshiping the Lord. He was praying. He was doing what he needed to do. He was a follower of Yahweh. His name was Doag, the Edomite, and he was Saul's chief shepherd. Now, uh, let's see. Doag is an Edomite. Now, Edomites were generally hostile toward Israel throughout history. So here's an Edomite who it's 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 uh it's partially uh ethnic prejudice that had occurred between the two nations. But here was a man who followed Yahweh. He's at the temple. He had converted. He was uh, he was in essence a Hebrew and he was incredibly loyal to Saul. Saul probably had had um, Encountered him either on his way to a battle or during a battle or after a battle, and and this man was well, I, I you know I picture in my own little imagination here was a man who probably lost a battle uh, to the to the quote the God of Israel, and he found it fascinating that this God that that they could have lost this battle and he went and he and he followed after Saul and Saul was part of his conversion. To following Yahweh and so Doag is there and he's watching he's he's aware of all this he's Saul's chief shepherd chief shepherd well a king's livestock was really the king's wealth so Doag was was part of Saul's uh, I mean, he had to be in one of his most trusted circles because he oversaw the king's livestock. He oversaw the 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 taxes. I mean, not everybody could give him money, right? So they would give a certain percentage of their livestock every every year. Doag was in charge of collecting that, maintaining it, keeping it alive. He was part of Saul's cabinet. He would have been part of the royal court. He definitely knew who David was. He rec- he could he would have seen David. He probably had had mul- multiple conversations. Think about this. They're both in the royal court. Doag is in charge of all the sheep. David was a lifelong shepherd. You don't think they exchanged stories about crazy stuff that happened to him out in the field? About the 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 lions, the tigers, the bears, the wolves, the coyotes, the snakes, the scorpions, the spiders? All the crazy things that can happen to a, to to sheep out in the field. You don't think they exchange stories about raiders and 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 uh, uh, outlaws that would come and try and steal sheep? About the way that they would identify sheep, the calls that they had for sheep, the the pens that were built for sheep, the way that they would protect the sheep at night, the way that I mean, there were so many places that that David and Doag had common ground to have conversations that over the years they've had to have a number of them, lots of them. And David knew that he was an Edomite, and he knew that generally they did not like, as a culture, they didn't like the Israelites, and the Israelites didn't like them. But he was a convert. 
and he was somebody who was trusted and he was somebody part of the royal court and he was somebody that David would have recognized as well and when he looked up and he saw him I think David in his mind thought oh crud alright so then he asks the priest uh, uh, Himelech, he says uh, do you have a spear or a sword I haven't brought any sword or any other weapon with me because you know I was sent on this mission so urgently I literally just I ran out of the city at full speed I didn't even I, I'm surprised I even have shoes on and again I'm sure Limelech's thinking uh, okay well uh, yes I do have one sword here the sword of Goliath uh, the one that you killed is here it's wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod if you want it take it there is no sword here but that one David's like oh perfect give it to me ha <laughs> perfect this thing's huge this thing's huge it's heavy it probably is uh, ornate uh, it it and and why is it wrapped up and hid behind the ephod oh uh, pretty much because the Philistines have wanted that bad boy back for years that was a symbol that was something of value that was a that was national pride and they knew that that no one in Israel had the physical ability to carry it especially in the battle so it had to be held somewhere and I'm sure they figured it was in the palace and it maybe it was for a little while but then they realized you know Israel was like if we don't we we, we can't we can't keep this thing in the palace of the Philistines will just keep attacking here so they they moved it and then there's a good possibility that they moved it around from one religious site to another so that the Philistines and generally people wouldn't ever really know where the where the sword was there would never be this long-standing rumor of oh the sword is kept at that place oh yeah 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 it is and then the Philistines would send a raiding party or a small army to go get it. So with David standing there asking for a sword, again the priest he doesn't he doesn't assume David's lying. He's like, well, I do have one. I only have one. It's the sword of Goliath. It's hidden so that the Philistines don't ever find it. And it you know it's it's national pride for us and it's a national embarrassment for them. So they want it back, and we want to keep it. But if you want it, you can take it. David's like, perfect. There is That is exactly what I need. And so David fled from Saul, and he heads to the Philistine capital. Wait, what? Now this is, this goes back, I don't, uh, this goes all the way back. Why did David ever leave Samuel? Why did he leave Rama? He was protected there. Clearly the Lord protected him there. Now I don't think it was evil or sinful for David to leave Rama. I just don't always understand when I when I'm, you know, walking through this, I don't understand why. Why he left. And I get a little bit of an idea of that in the verse, you know, first part of, of chapter 20 where he asks Jonathan what's going on and what crime have I committed? Like he wanted some answers. Why didn't he go back? When he found out he had to run, why didn't he go back? 
I don't know. Like, why did he go to Nob? Why did he go to Ahimelech? And was going to the Philistines always part of the part of his plan? When he ran from the field, was he thinking, I got to get to the Philistines? Now, I do know that culturally, culturally, David had a general agreement. Uh, there was a general awareness of an agreement that that high noted highly noted royalty or people in the cabinet of royalty would often be accepted by the royalty of your enemy that there was usually at least hospitality given to even your enemy this was this is still true today hospitality is is a huge cultural uh, thread or foundation however you want to however you want to frame it, frame it it's a huge cultural foundation to to the Middle East. And David would have known, listen, I I can go to my enemy and I can get shelter there. Like the Saul's not coming to the capital city to find me there. He's not going to send troops to try and get me there. There's going to have to be some form of agreement and Saul will probably just leave me alone. I won't have to run I won't put the priests in danger. I won't put the prophecy school in danger. I won't put the temples in, in danger. I will be taken care of. And he has the sword of Goliath, something that the Philistines desperately wanted. And he, so in essence, he had a negotiation tool. He had something he could exchange, in exchange for, for, for housing, in exchange for exile, he would give them the sword. It was technically his sword to give away because he's the one who captured it. So it wasn't illegal or even wrong for him to have the sword. He could have hung on to the sword. But it was uh, instead you know, hidden and moved around the country and he picked it up and he's headed to the Philistines. He gets to Gath, which in, in the Philistines had, they had a, a unique government uh, policy they basically had five key cities. Every city had a had a governor, or what I would call a governor. They would also call them kings. Uh, but they would have somebody who would oversee the cities and all the surrounding activities and, and the trade market and the, uh, the fishing markets and all that kind of stuff. And then he also, uh, th but but of the five cities, there would be one main king. And, and as far as we can tell within the Philistines, the main king would alternate, would switch around from one city to another, not necessarily on a regular uh, routine like every two years. This, you know, a governor would become king, and everybody else, you know, the the former king would be, just be governor again. But but they would they would rotate where the quote capital city was and who the king was. But Akish was the king at this time. He lived in the city of Gath. And David went there probably to negotiate an exile, to negotiate a place to stay. He didn't want to run. He wanted to stay uh, safe. I don't know why he didn't go to God. I don't. I don't. I don't know why he didn't go back to Samuel and ask. Why he didn't ask Akish and say, "Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Like, can we, can we pray together? Can we connect? Can you?" And I spend some time in worship and let's figure out if the Lord can give me some indication as to what I should do next. He runs to the enemy because it's safe. 
This is this is uh this is something that a lot of Christians do, right? The pressure gets 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 on us. The it gets intense. And suddenly we think it's on us to, to protect ourselves. We think it's on us to come up with a plan. And we don't go to God. And I think this is just a, a natural a natural choice of, of David. I don't think it's a spiritual choice. I don't think it was, again, I don't think it was sinful. I just don't think it was good. It wasn't the best choice. God's goodness is still there, and, and we'll see it. God's goodness is still there. God's going to give him, you know, uh, he's, he, he didn't leave him. He didn't, like, say, well, you're on your own. I'll catch you later. When God sees the choices that we have, he sees all the results of those choices that we're going to make. And, and every possibility that we could ever choose, he knows how his goodness will show up for us in those circumstances. That's how sovereign he is. And that's how good he is. Every possibility, every possible choice and every result of that choice, he, he knows what it would be. And he says, uh, this is how my goodness will show up for them. My goodness will never depart from them. I will never depart from them. There's no, you know, you're not, you're not going to surprise God with any of your choices. He's already thought it out. Every choice you could possibly make. Some people think, you know, God's, God's the predetermined every choice you could possibly make. And that's, that's not the way sovereignty works. I do understand why you want to, to present it that way. Sovereignty looks like that, right? We experience it like that. But usually, our experience doesn't necessarily give us great theology. So God looks at, at all this and he's like, all right, this is how my goodness is, gonna, is going to supply David with goodness. This is how I'm going to supply David with goodness. So David shows up at the at the city of Gath. Now I think he probably ran all night because it's uh, it's more than three miles. <laughs> he went for a while. So he gets all the way to to Gath and and I think the sun is coming up. David goes to the to the king. So he hasn't actually seen the king yet, but he heads to the palace. And the servants at the palace say to themselves, "Wait." Isn't that, king? Isn't that David? Yeah. Now they call him a king. In some versions, uh, it's like he's the king, right? He's the king of the land. But 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 some say he was the anointed king. So the that rumor mill had already crossed boundary uh, uh, national boundaries, and others might have just you. It might have been a phrasing that they used because they knew he was in charge of the armies. And they had never defeated him. So in their mind, he was he was the ruler, because in their culture, the guy who runs the army is the guy who runs the uh, runs the nation. So they look at David; he's the king. They recognize him, which is pretty significant. When you have, uh, you know, the lack of photographs, the lack of social media, newspaper, like there's just how did they how did they know this? Well, there's a couple ways, right? I'm sure he was described by many when he was in the battlefield. The long, wavy slash curly hair, the the type of tunic he would wear, the type of shoes he wore. He he was he was known. What he did, people recognized. People knew. It was it was uh, it was 
It was the evening news when you'd sit around uh, after dinner. You'd talk about various things, and people would describe David. This is what I heard he looks like. Now, I think some of the servants uh, of, of Akish probably looked at him and thought, Whoa, he is handsome. I think so, because he was a handsome boy. He had run all night. He'd run all night, and he had this huge sword strapped to his back. There's no way it was hanging off his waist. The thing was too big. He had a huge sword strapped to his back. I just think, you know, he had the great pecs and the triceps and the biceps, and his, his, uh, his legs were just pulsating from running through the night. He was sweaty, so his muscles were glistening. He comes walking in, and I think his good looks were one of the main things that the servants saw. They were like, wait a minute, is this David? Wait, isn't he the one? He's the one? He's got to be, that has got to be him. That has got to be David. I remember my uncle told me that he wore this type of shoe, and that's the kind of shoe. That's that's the sandals. I remember my my uh, father told me this. I remember my cousin told me this. He did battle against David, and he said he had that kind of hair. I remember this. And they sang those songs. They sing those songs. David has slain his or Saul has slain his thousands, but David has has killed his tens of thousands. And and those tens of thousands are mostly us. So they start to talk amongst themselves, and David hears them. He hears them just, in other words, David David assumes he can walk in uh, unknown, undercover, without being recognized. And and he's fairly reasonable. I mean, I would I would never assume I'm unrecognized. I, I'm not famous, but my picture, like if you if you find me, you'll find me. Like my picture is everywhere. You go to Bob Thoughts, you're gonna see all kinds of pictures of me because. I videotape those things, or record videotape. That's how old I am. <laughs> I record those things at least once a week. You can scroll down there and see all kinds of different styles and hair that I've had over the over whatever number of years I've been doing them. David didn't have that option. He assumed he could he could walk in here and not be recognized. But then when he sees the servant staring at him, he starts to get suspicious. And when he starts to hear them talking. And he starts to hear his name being his name echoing through the hall. That's what I think happened. He's like, he hears that it is David, David. Oh, it's David, 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 David. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. David, David. David's like, oh no. So he takes him to heart. And he was very much afraid. He realized that he may never get to the negotiating table with the sword of Goliath. He realized that by the time the king comes into this room, there's a good chance that some of these servants, I've killed their father, I've killed their cousin, I've killed their brother, or at least I've led the troops that have. And he's, I think because of the fear factor that he got in this and what he ends, what he chooses to do because he's so afraid, I think that he really thought uh, there, there was, it was more than just admiration. Now it was becoming threatening. His name, when they were saying their name, his name, he was hearing words like, I'm going to kill him. 
I'll kill him right here. If that's David, I will kill him right now. I'll put a, I'll put a knife in him. So David becomes afraid, and he pretends to be insane. He begins to act like a lunatic. He knows that life is getting dangerous, so he be, he becomes dangerous. He becomes like a madman. And he starts to run around, banging on things, probably turning over whatever tables were around. He starts scratching at the door. He literally is is marking the gates with his with his you know nails. He's probably kicking things. He's the Bible the Bible wants to make sure we know he letting saliva. He's letting spit run down his beard. He's spitting and now now you know when he walked in he looked kind of stunning with the sweat and the pulsating heartbeat and the and the muscles glistening. And now he looks like a lunatic because now he's he's like got spit running down his his beard. He's he's his wide eyes. He's screaming and banging on things and he's making threatening motions toward toward the servants that were at one point were kind of threatening him. And the king walks into this to this lunacy that's going on in the in the temple or in the temple in the hallway or in the throne room wherever wherever in the courtyard wherever David is at this point they had gone to get the king because somebody was here to see you a stranger with a big sword just showed up and and sure enough man he walks in and he just sees look at look at what is this why why are you bringing him to me am i so short of lunatics of madmen, do, do I not have enough of these types of people in my in my country that you bring this person here to me? You carry him on, to have him carry on like this in front of me. What what is this supposed to be entertaining? I'm not bringing him in. This man will not come into my house. No. Now there's also a, a cultural thing going on here that is that David also would have been aware of. And why he chose to go act like a crazy man. And that is this. One, but first of all, you act like a lunatic, you don't look like yourself. So he would have become, uh, it would have been tough to, to, to justify believing that this was David. And secondly, and more importantly, it was considered very much a dishonorable thing to kill a crazy man. To kill a lunatic, it was, it was, uh, it was a mark. It was, a, it was humiliating. It was embarrassing. That it, that if you couldn't control a crazy man, you know that you would kill him because there was no honor in that. There was no honor in killing a, a crazy person. So he's, the king comes out looking at this and he, he's like, I, I don't, you know, this is, this is stupid. This is, you guys got me up. You drag me out here to see what? To see this? I can, if I want to see crazy, I've got there's plenty of crazy people in my country. I can, I'll go watch them. Why? Why are? You, why is this man being dragged into my house? And none of the servants then could stand there and say, "Oh, it's it's David, it's King David, it's the leader of the military of the of the nation of Israel. He's Saul's right hand man. You, you this is David. None of them were going to stand up and justify their their opinion of that at that point. They were going to. 
They weren't going to risk their lives in front of the king to be like, yeah, I have a, I'd like to prove my case that this is King David. Somehow, nobody catches on that David has a sword of Goliath hey, strapped to his back. He's just running around. Who knows? He might have even been swinging it. And and that again, they're not they're not making the connection. They're just literally seeing a lunatic. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who's lost it, who is you know uh, uh, imbalanced in that way. And I'm not making light of it. I know that it happens. I have relatives so uh, that that have uh, it, you know mental disorders, and so I'm not making light of this. But if you've ever been around somebody who's lost it, it's scary. You your your internal instincts are there's there's like like how do i control this and i know that that's 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 true for people who work with these with with those with mental disabilities and and mental defects that, that you know chemical imbalances that if if things get out of balance approaching them and controlling them in a humane manner is really difficult and you have to be well trained to pull it off and often their their strength levels are off the charts because their their bodies are being pulsated with with such chemical imbalances that they are, they're like super strong. It's 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 intense. And so David acting like a crazy man in front of everybody is is partially that as well. They all just kind of back off. No one's going to pretend that they thought it was David to begin with. The king comes out and says, "I have no idea why I'm here." You tell me some guy wants to see me with a big sword, and this is what I come out to. A lunatic running around in my courtyard. I don't need any more lunatics. Get him out of my house. And they kick David out into the streets. And he runs away. And we'll end there, so to speak. Not so to speak. We are going to end soon. Why did David lie? Why did he run to the enemy for protection? Why didn't he go back to the the prophet? Why didn't he stay at the temple? Why, why, why? This is where I want to encourage you to use your own imaginations. Because I think we've all done these sort of things. We've we've come up with plans that make sense in the moment. And we look back and go, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Yeah. I was in this good place. I mean, it was scary, but I was in a good place. I was protected. God was clearly working. And then and then I left. I don't know why I did that. Well, I kind of wanted to have some answers. I got some answers, but why did I just keep running? Why did I think I had to run? And God's goodness is still with you, you know, if you're in that spot. God's goodness still he can't he can't leave you. He he never leaves you or forsakes you. And David knew this. David David lived this out. That's why when David wrote songs and psalms, and when he would just freelance lyrics, he always ends with the fact that God is there. God is with him. God hasn't left him. It's why when Jesus was on the cross, he started to say this, you know, the psalm where he said, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" But but Jesus was a rabbi, and on the cross, Jesus would have still been considered a rabbi. And rabbis would, would in order to save the, the, the papyrus, the 
the paper. It's not paper. What, did, what was the scripture written on? In order to save that, they would only read the first sentence of whatever passage it was that they wanted to review that day, and then they would close it up again. And everybody would just would just recite the rest of the psalm. And so, so Jesus starts the psalm knowing that every priest, every Pharisee, every Sadducee, every good Jewish boy that was in the vicinity would hear the beginning of that psalm and they would automatically start reciting it. And at the in the psalm, it goes back to the point. I mean, it goes back to this point. It's beautiful. He says, but, but you've never left me. You've never forsaken me. Basically, it just, it just looks that way, and it sometimes feels that way, but I know it's not true. And that's what Jesus was saying on the cross. Father, you've never forsaken me. You're always with me. And I think David lived this. He knew this. And even in this moment where he clearly had a near-death experience, he gets kicked out of the palace. He's in the streets, and I think he probably ran out of town. I don't think he hung around. He just ran out of town, probably still grunting and moaning and, and screaming so that he, he was fully convincing all the way till he was out into the wilderness. And we'll pick up there on our next podcast. But, but in all of that, God's goodness never left David. And I'd like to hear from you guys why you think he did what he did, why you think he left Samuel, why you think he didn't hang out with Nob or worship with Nob uh, at Nob? Sorry, not he was a a Himalek, not (laughs) Nob was the the village. Why he didn't stay there, why he didn't worship there, why he didn't ask for for some insider wisdom. The ephod was there, he could have they could have done one of those uh sessions (laughs) with the priest. The ephod was a was a basically a, a dice game that the Lord would speak through, which is a really cool kind of crazy way to be able to say you know god can god can talk through anything he's not limited but david's in a tight spot right now and he runs out of town and he's alone and we'll pick that up on our next podcast because it's pretty pretty crazy as we run into the wilderness Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Epic Narrative. If you have questions for Bob or would like to reach out for booking, please email us at thebobswitzer at gmail.com or visit thebobswitzer.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Epic Narrative Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. See you next week for another chapter in our story on The Epic Narrative.